0: Have you ever noticed that some things that look one way from a distance, once you get up close, you realize it's not quite what it looked like from way back there? Like some of you in the back may think this is Dr. Estep. <laughs> it's not. This is uh, Wes. I'll let you decide whether that's better or not. I'm just kidding. but. Um, many years ago, I was, uh, uh, ran to the post office on Assembly Street, doing some business inside of the post office. And on my way out, the doors were about to open. They're on those automatic doors. And I saw somebody sitting in the driver's seat of my old Explorer. And I thought, what are they doing in my car? And then the lady started to shut the door. So I immediately pick up the pace and I start saying, ma'am, that's my car. Get out of my car. When people are around and they, you know, the commotion has already started. Well, she looks back at me. She said, no, this is my car. And she starts shutting the door. Well, if this had been that show, what would you do? Nobody got involved. Okay, so it was just me and this lady. And I'm like, this is my, what is she doing? I said, "Man, somebody's trying to steal my car, thinking I might need a little help here. You know, block the parking place. Well, she was committed to the fact that this was her car. Well, a couple years prior to that, I was a student at the university. And I had pulled into the parking lot of my dormitory and saw a bike that looked like mine headed off campus uh, with some other guy on it. So I got up close and realized that was my bike. He stole my bike right in front of me. Well, I was not going to let this woman steal my car. And so I'm, I'm holding onto the door so she can't shut it. Ma'am, this is my car. Well, all of a sudden she looked at me and I could see fear in her eyes and it dawned on me this lady thought this was her car from a distance, sat down in the car, and now can't quite get it cranked and is afraid somebody's trying to, you know, carjack her or something. So my car had a few things wrong with it that hers probably didn't. So I started pointing out those things to her. Ma'am, look at the window. You see how it's blocked? It won't roll up or roll down. That's my car, you know, the window's broken. I pointed out the radio to her and then I said, and my car won't lock. That's why you were able to get in it and you didn't have to use your key. And she starts looking around and finally you see it just, you know, going off in her eyes. She took the key out. She took her purse. She didn't say a word. She got out of the door. (laughs) Two cars down, cranked the car and drove off. And I'm looking for the cameras of whatever candid show I'm on. But it's funny that the uh, trick your mind will play on you from a distance when you see a vehicle, and then you get up close and you realize it's not mine. It happened to me just last week out in the parking lot. I'm sitting there clicking, and I hear it beeping, but it won't unlock, you know. Come on. Oh, wrong car, you know. (laughs) Well, Jesus and the disciples uh, have a, a day like this when something from a distance looks one way, but once you get up on it, you realize it's not quite what it looked like. From a distance. So, what I want us to do is we're going to enter into the timeline of that holiest of weeks. And it begins with Jesus on what we refer to as Palm Sunday, riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. There's palm branches waving. People are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, Jesus is parading into the city. Mark tells us that Jesus immediately goes to the temple complex. He looks around, but it's almost evening. So he and the disciples head back to Bethany for the night. And then the very next day they come back into Jerusalem. There's this encounter with a tree that we'll look at in a little bit. But then they go directly into the temple complex for um, one of the more memorable narratives from Jesus' lifetime. And as memorable as it is, it's also one of the most confusing passages. It's very hard for us to reconcile Jesus into this story. You know, it's easy for us to, uh, you know, imagine Jesus in the temple when he's a child, you know, teaching the uh, religious teachers there and them astounded by his wisdom. We can wrap our minds around that. It's easy to picture Jesus sitting down next to that well, speaking to that Samaritan woman, and knowing more about her than she knew about herself. That's somewhere we can go to in our minds. We can even visualize Jesus healing uh, the, the blind man, giving him sight, or causing a lame man to walk. And as unbelievable as it is, I think we can even put ourselves there where Jesus is standing outside of that tomb with Lazarus on the other side dead and Jesus calling him to come out. We can picture that. But to imagine Jesus in the temple with the money changers. It's a very difficult place for us to wrap our mind around. So we're going to turn to Mark 11, and we're going to begin in verse 15. And remember, according to Mark, this is the day after uh, the triumphal entry, and just days before he's arrested and crucified. So it's Passover week in Jerusalem. And let me read to you from Mark 11, and we're going to begin in verse 15. We read, They came to Jerusalem... And he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. Then he began to teach them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Well, this doesn't sound quite like that peaceful Jesus that we're used to reading about. But church, this is Jesus the King in the temple in Jerusalem that we're reading about. So I want us to look carefully at what's happening in this passage. Mark says that um, Jesus and his disciples entered into the temple complex. <clears throat> well, the temp- this is the third temple built by Herod the Great. And as much as they didn't like Herod, they loved this temple that he had built for him. And it was this gorgeous structure. And the, uh, you know the main structure would be inside where the inner courts were. The court of women, the court of Israel, the court of the priests, and inside of that the Holy of Holies. But outside of that were the outer courts, which was a huge uh, space, about 35 acres. And it's surrounded by this beautiful colonnade, and it has these covered porches, and we refer to it as the court of the Gentiles. And this is the largest part in the whole temple. And so it makes sense that this is where all of a sudden these people came in, in and set up their bazaar and started selling all their, uh, their goods there and trading the money and all of those things. Because this will be the right place to do that. Because in order to get in anywhere into the temple, you have to go through this uh, court of the Gentiles, the outer courts. And so um, I want us just to kind of go there for a moment in our minds. Jesus walks in and would have immediately been overwhelmed by the amount of people that were there inside of the temple. This is Passover week, and historians tell us that uh, uh, the uh, population in Jerusalem would swell to like 3 million people at Passover when people uh, uh, came into the city for worship and for the celebrations there. And Josephus tells us that one week at Passover, one year, 255,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed on the temple grounds. And so you can imagine just how chaotic this place kind of is, you know, with just throngs and throngs of people and then stall after stall of, you know, people buying and selling the the animals, the livestock that they have there and uh, just a place. And then people are coming from all over. So they've got to exchange their money for the right type of currency. Uh, the currency that they would accept there at those tables or that the priests would accept. And they probably didn't take the Roman currency, so they're trying to exchange it. You know, so they got their dollar or their euro. Can you turn this into denarii or whatever it might be? And uh, so they're trying to change it there. And so it's just a loud place. And it's just crowded with people. And the th- best visual I can offer to you is imagine yourself yourself standing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And you may have been there before, but you can at least imagine what it's like. You know, with that loud bell, and then all of a sudden the people buying and selling and trading and shouting and ticker tape coming out. And it's just a chaotic place. Now add to that livestock, mm, you know, on the floor of this stock exchange. So this is a chaotic place. This is a place that's pretty loud. And um, it's, you know, not the kind of atmosphere um, that you would imagine to be in a temple. And it was called the court of the Gentiles. Now, why would there be a court of the Gentiles in the temple for the Jewish people? Well, when Jesus began teaching, the thing that astounded the people, the thing that got their attention is he said, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So this place was supposed to be a place where the Gentiles could gather to pray, where they can meet with God. And how could that happen with all of the madness that we imagine to be there in the court of the Gentiles? Henry Sweet says, Who could pray in a place which was at once a cattle market and an exchange, where the lowing of oxen mingled with the clinking of silver and the chaffering and haggling of the dealers and those who came to purchase? Well, it couldn't. So Jesus the peaceful does the shocking. He starts flipping over tables. And he starts ushering people out. And some people are walking from one side of the temple to the other and they're cutting through and they're carrying their goods and Jesus starts making their way out and he's, he's causing quite a commotion there in the middle of this scene. And so this is one of those moments, what would you do? Well, the people around him were probably thinking, you know, what is he doing? It's Passover week. This is our busiest time, and he's, you know, getting rid of the money changers. How are they going to do this? Getting rid of the people that are selling. What are we going to do here? It's Passover week. And so Jesus quotes Isaiah with these words. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Well, this verse comes directly from a prophetic word spoken by God through Isaiah to foreigners, to Gentiles, to non-Jews. Where God's declaring that there is room for them in the temple if they would pursue after him that his temple, there would be a place there for prayer from all tongues and from all tribes. And we're told this amazed the people. Well, why would it amaze the people? Well, some scholars tell us that at the time, that uh, the Jewish people assumed, or their assumption was, or they believed, when the Messiah came, he would actually go into the temple and expel all the foreigners from the temple. They were so self-absorbed. They totally missed the point of being God's chosen people, those that were to carry the oracles of God, those that were to be witnesses to a watching world, and they thought God's gonna, you know, the Messiah's gonna come and get rid of all these people. But Jesus comes in and he starts clearing the way, make way for the Gentiles. And there's something lovely about Jesus that he's always making room for people who are far from God. And that's what he's doing there in the temple, is he's just kicking people out who are there for all of the wrong reasons. And so you see, this story has a whole lot deeper meaning than what we normally stop with when we talk about selling CDs and things like that in the foyer. There's a much more powerful message in here. Jesus was showing or was demonstrating or teaching that the people had made a mockery of his temple. What was supposed to be the mediation center between God and man, that meant Israel, that meant the Gentiles, all of the nations had become a total distraction from the things of God even though they thought they were doing the right thing. Well, were the sacrifices important inside of the temple? Absolutely. Was the Passover celebration significant? Was it a great thing they were celebrating? Of course it was. But this was not supposed to be known as a house of sacrifice or a court of celebration. He said, "My temple, my my, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." Nobody was praying in the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't. As busy as the temple was, as many as people as there were there, as active and as filled as it was, there was a systemic problem inside of the temple. Something was not right. There was something wrong here. In fact, Jesus foreshadowed Or illustrates this previously in a couple verses that we skipped over. You remember I told you that after he triumphantly entered, he went to the temple and then retired to Bethany. And on his way back in, he encountered a tree early in the morning. Well, let's back up to those verses because I think it illustrates a little bit what's happening here. In verse 12 of Mark 11, we read, The next day when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. And after seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves... He went, out to found, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Have you ever woke up in the morning and you've been so hungry? That you just bypass all of your morning rituals, you know, and you just head straight for the kitchen, you know, and it's like so hungry. In my case, it would be stepping over little children, stepping over toys, you know, way Get to the kitchen and you go to the pantry and you open it, and there's that Pop-Tart box, and you reach in and you pull out the Pop-Tarts, and it's empty. Who puts empty boxes back in the pantry? You know, so you throw it away and you reach down and you get the cereal and it's just crumbs. The crumbs will have to do. So you pour it in the bowl, and you go to the refrigerator. You pull out the milk, and you open it. And who puts expired milk back in the refrigerator? You know, so you put it back in, right? And then, <laughs> who's going to pour that out, right? You know, Not me. Well, then, you, So you reach down to the freezer, and you pull out the waffles, and you take the waffles, you drop them in, you know, the toaster, and you push them down. You go to the pantry, and you open it up and no syrup. And maybe you want to curse the pantry. And you think, is that what Jesus just did? He woke up and he was hungry. Fig tree. He gets to the tree, there's no figs. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And maybe you open up the pantry and you say, since you couldn't feed me this morning, may no one ever eat food from you again. And in my house, my wife would say, If you look behind the cereal, there's a new box of Pop-Tarts for you, you know? She doesn't talk like that. That's just how I hear it sometimes in my head. But, you know, this is a strange thing. What's happening here? What is happening with this encounter with Jesus here at this fig tree? You know, we're used to seeing Jesus bless things, not necessarily curse things. There's that one miracle of destruction in Scripture when um, Jesus casts the demons out of the possessed man. And they ask permission to go into the pigs and Jesus allows them to go into the pigs and they run off the cliff and they, you know, they jump to their death, leap to their death. But we're not used to seeing that. So what is Jesus doing cursing a tree? Why is he not blessing the tree? May you produce fruit? now? you know, kind of thing. So the, Jesus, the fact that Jesus is essentially cursing this tree is a curious thing. Well, you want to know what's stranger? The very next day, This is what we read in verse 20. This is after Jesus cleared the temple. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. So I think it's essential that we ask the question, what is going on here? Well, by far, I think the best explanation that we have is that this was deliberately staged by Jesus as a symbolic act there's nothing in the scriptures to make us think well he was just grumpy he was just hungry you know he'd had a bad day he was just giving himself over to the flesh whatever it might be instead what we have is a very intentional rabbi a very intentional teacher doing something out of the ordinary that I would say is just enforcing the point he's about to make in just a few verses Quite frankly, without the bracketed part here about the temple here, it might be easier for us to conclude he was just hungry. But I think putting it all together, there's some kind of message here for us. So I want us to dig deep into what Jesus may be communicating to us through this fig tree. Now Mark points out to us that it was not the season for figs. Well, that's our first um, point that we should recognize there, that this was potentially a symbolic act that was happening. Trees in Jerusalem, I'm told, get leafy in March and until November, but they don't bear fruit until June. Well, this is Passover, so no one would expect there necessarily to be fruit on the fig trees if that's exactly how it happens. But something happened from a distance. He sees the tree. It's not just that it has leaves on it, but it's a, you know, an amount that makes you think there's fruit on that tree. I know it's early, but there's fruit on that tree. So he and his disciples see that tree in the distance and say, there might be breakfast on that. And they head towards the tree. And when they get there and they get a closer look, they think it's ripe for the picking. But no, it's not. There was no fruit. The tree didn't fulfill its purpose as it appeared to be from a distance. Kenneth Wiest writes, the Lord condemned the tree, not only because of its fruitlessness, but because of its fruitlessness in the midst of a display which promised fruit so there was something about the display that says there's fruit on this tree Jesus approached, and it's fruitless and so there's something about that that makes him kind of curse or declare this whole thing about the tree and no one will eat from it now a tree that appears to be blooming out of season points to a problem inside of the tree there's something wrong with the tree the tree is diseased Or the tree is dying. Or the tree is on its last leg of some sort. This is not a biblical thing. This is a botanical thing. This is just how plants are. Um, So what we have here is this tree that should have fruit on it. It doesn't have fruit on it. So maybe, potentially what's happening is that Jesus the king is not cursing the tree. Rather, he's just diagnosing the tree. The tree's diseased. No one will ever eat fruit from this tree again. In fact, Ken Hemphill points out the text does not indicate that Jesus cursed the tree. It tells us that he spoke to the tree saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. It was Peter later who concluded that Jesus had cursed the tree. Nonetheless, we find out something was wrong with the tree because the next day it's withered from the roots up. And I think in this fig tree, we find a memorable object lesson, a parable against hollow religious activity produced a lot of leaves but didn't bear any fruit this tree is not doing its appointed job which is the perfect metaphor for the temple in Israel and the people of God because Jesus was returning to a place that was very busy it was the busiest time of year for the temple but the busyness in the temple contained no spirituality Nobody was actually praying in the court of Gentiles. The temple was not known as a house of prayer for all nations. Holman writes, Just as the figless tree could not satisfy Jesus' appetite, so the religious system could not satisfy the spiritual hunger of the people. The temple appeared to be very busy with activity, and it was overwhelmed with activity. That tree appeared to be bearing fruit, but after closer examination, everything reveals that there is a systemic problem in the temple and there's a systemic problem in the tree. Now, there's a whole lot of directions we could go for application today. We could start talking about the current affairs inside of the global church or maybe, you know, the state of things here at First Baptist Church. But as I've read this over and over again, the Holy Spirit takes me to 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that you are the temple of God? The temple is much more than bricks and mortar. (laughs) It's a whole lot more than a charter and a congregation. But beloved, you are the temple. You are the church. So let me be very clear for you as I draw the parallels for you. I wonder what those people who are observing your life, what they see when they look at you from a distance. For the most part, they probably see somebody who's performing and doing certain religious activities, right? Jesus sets the schedule in a certain sense. The fact that you're here on a Sunday in July for Bible study and worship says a lot in a society that doesn't, you know, that doesn't think that's important. So that's what they probably see. And maybe there's other things about your schedule that God sets the agenda. Maybe you pray before you eat. You know, You stop and you pause and you pray before you eat. And people recognize that. Or maybe from the distance they can see that you carry around a Bible, that you keep a Bible on your bedside table, that you keep a Bible in your vehicle, that you keep a Bible loaded on your smartphone. Or maybe you have one in all three. Or maybe because you're a follower of Jesus, you only listen to Christian music. Or maybe because you're a follower of Jesus, not only do you go to church, you also go to Sunday school, you help out with pals, and you sing in the choir. And so people from a distance look and say, wow, this person is a godly person. This is a very spiritual person. But what happens when someone starts looking under those leaves? Is there any fruit under there? Or is there so many people packed inside of that court of the Gentiles, but really no prayer happening there? See, I think as Jesus looked at the temple, he was communicating, I see all the people. I see there's throngs of people. And I can tell there's more sacrifice happening this week than any other time. It's a busy time. And I can see all the the, the rushing around and the doing. But I want more than just busyness in the temple. What I want is real life change. Real heart change. True disciples. Pure followers of Jesus Christ. Is it obvious to those that are closest to you that Jesus is changing you? That's the question I've been asking myself. Is it obvious to people that are closest to me that he's transforming me from the person I used to be into the person he desires for me to be in every area of my life? Or am I just busy with pseudo-spiritual activities? What about you? As a follower of Jesus, living in his presence, you're not just to become a nicer person, a more moral person, a more disciplined person. But the life and character of Jesus the King is to be reproduced in your life. So that when people see you, they see a representation of Jesus, ambassador of Christ, in whatever arena you carry that. In your home life, when you go to work, in the community, where you serve. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Is Jesus obviously seen by those who are closest to you? Can people see evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Let me give you an example. If you're an anxious person, if you struggle with anxiety, is it clear to everybody around you that you're overcoming that? Or you're working to overcome that? Or the Holy Spirit is working to overcome that in your life? If you're an angry or unforgiving person, have you begun to clearly conquer anger? In your life, Are you learning to absorb the cost of forgiveness? Are you still holding on to grudges? Well, if the character of Jesus Christ is to re- be reproduced in you, there's only one good answer to that. If you're fearful or self-hating or self-aggrandizing, can the people that know you best recognize that your character is changing, you're being transformed, or are you just very busy with religious activities? If you're a temple of God, could it be said of you, that you are a house of prayer for all nations? Or are you just praying before your meals? Or maybe whenever you, your life hits tragedy? I mean, what an indictment against the people of God that the only time we pray is whenever we have to go through a storm. Some of you would never pray if you didn't go through a storm. Well, let me just say that there's evidence of the Holy Spirit if He's in your life because He comes and He bears fruit. Just like you can tell if the Queen of England is in residence at her palace because of the flag flying high. People should see the standard of the Holy Spirit flying high above your life. Because when He comes into your life, He starts bearing the fruit of love, even when people are unloving. And He starts uh, bearing the fruit of joy and peace, even whenever you hit difficult circumstances. And He starts producing patience in your life whenever you're having to wait and things aren't going as quickly as you want them to. And He reproduces he produces kindness and goodness in your life whenever people are hateful towards you. And he bears the fruit of faithfulness whenever you live in a culture that's faithless. And he produces the fruit of gentleness and self-control when you live in a society that gives itself over to indulgence. So it's time for the people of God to wake up and take seriously the life that we were called to live. Not just be busy with what appears to be spiritual things. So I want to invite you to respond today to a call of renewal because I think that's what Jesus was doing in the temple was calling the people toward renewal in a few minutes our choir is going to sing and I want you to respond to the Word of God today are you in a relationship with Jesus Christ? now I know you probably have intellectual knowledge about Him but has that intellectual knowledge led to you surrendering your life to Him, believing on Him For salvation, the forgiveness of sins. See, when Jesus went to that temple and overturned those tables and kicked out those that were selling and buying and trading, part of what he was doing was pointing out the fact that this whole idea of the sacrifice is changing. Because in a few days, he was going to be the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God. No more sacrifice required. Well, have you allowed him to be the sacrifice for the sins of your life and asked him to be Lord of your life? Well, today's the day of salvation if you haven't done that. So I hope you'll respond in that way. Or maybe... You look at your life and you think, hmm, I bet from a distance people think I look religious, but if they got up real close, they'd recognize I'm only giving him the outside stuff, not necessarily the inside stuff. Well, today would be a great day for recommitment. Or if you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. So as the invitation's here, I pray that you would just seek God's face in this. How would he have you respond? Our Father in God, we thank you today that we can come in here and celebrate that you are alive and you give us life. Father, I pray that you would help us to live in a way that would show that we are dependent upon you. Now, Holy Spirit, come and have your way during this time of response. You know every need in every heart. You know the big questions that are there and the small questions. You know the need for response. So Holy Spirit, just have your way. Have your way in each of us. We surrender ourselves to you. We love you. We pray in all of this, Jesus, you'll teach us to love you more. To your name we pray. Amen.